Hello, and welcome to the 21st episode of the Ocean Decade Show, a podcast dedicated to guiding you down the yellow brick road of this global initiative to transform the ocean, housed within the American Shoreline Podcast Network family. My name is Taylor Gales, and I'm your host and tour guide on our adventure through the ocean decade. So most of the people I interview on this podcast, I've never met in real life. <laughs> it's it's a crazy reality of the global nature of this show and the lasting impacts of, of the current COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, and while I haven't met my guests today, the reason that they're on the show is because of one of those crazy random meetings that only happens when getting to meet people in person. I really love those serendipitous moments. Uh, and it's something that we lost, I think, during the pandemic, especially for early career individuals. But these moments, you know, really underline for me the value of meeting in person when safe, you know, with proper health and safety guidelines, of course. So back to the origin story of this episode before I wax on poetically about, you know, the wonderful human nature and the randomness of, of interactions in this ocean space. But as many of you know, my day job is at the Aspen Institute. Uh, and in May of 2022, we hosted our inaugural Aspen Ideas Climate event, which is also happening again in March 2023. So for those of you who are interested in that event, let me know. Um, but at Aspen Ideas Climate, I made plans to get drinks with my friend Danielle Fernandez, uh, who's been on this show, the founder and CEO of Sustainable Ocean Alliance. Um, and she'd invited me to a small gathering with some of the companies supported by SOA, including this fascinating company that I had never heard of called CalWave. During those serendipitous drinks, I had a great conversation with Ryan Davidson, CalWave's business development lead, about my work at Aspen uh, and Aspen Ideas Climate and Miami Beach. And then I just happened to mention that in my spare time, <laughs> as we all have a lot of spare time, uh, of course, I hosted a podcast and to let me know if Calway was ever interested in in appearing on the show. And lo and behold, a few months later, here we are. Uh, I'm really excited to be featuring Calwave today, which is a company I've learned a lot about in a short amount of time. <laughs> and so I'm excited to learn more about it with you all here today. So CalWave Power Technologies is, as you might be able to guess, California-based <laughs> wave energy developer with the mission to provide reliable, cost-effective ocean wave technologies for sustainable energy access. I'll let my guest today tell you more about the origin stories and how, how this company kind of came to be. But I think it's a testament to the power of universities to spur innovation and entrepreneurship, which is not something that I think the general public associates with universities or academia in general, or even, you know, some of their funding is from the US federal government. I don't necessarily always think of US government and innovation, but so that funding is so important. Um, and there's such an opportunity for innovation, especially in the ocean energy space during the ocean decade. So I'm excited to speak to my guests today. You know, we're recording this episode right after uh, President Biden has signed the Inflation Reduction Act, which is going to just spur climate everything, you know, investment and work and hopefully in the offshore energy space uh, broader than just offshore wind. And so it's just it's it's a really hopeful time for me to be having this recording. And I'm really excited to be speaking to my guests today about their work with CalWave and what opportunities uh, lay in store for ocean energy during the ocean decade. So I have two guests joining me on the podcast this month, CalWave CEO and co-founder Marcus Lehman and the head of communications, Julie May. Uh, so in addition to founding CalWave in 2014, Marcus is a co-inventor of several US and international patents. 
And in 2016, he was named uh, in the Forbes 30 under 30 list for energy. And just FYI, Forbes, I'm turning 30 later this year. So you still have a few months left to feature me. (laughs) So you're not too late. Um, And then Julie and I have the odd connection of both having gone to the University of San Diego for parts of our education, uh, myself for undergrad and Julie for grad school. So such a small world always in this ocean space. Um, But thank you, Marcus and Julie, for, for being on the show this month. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having us and, and really excited. Yeah, thank you, Taylor. It's a pleasure. So first, I want to start with the question that I start all my podcasts with. Um, so I gave you a little bit of introductions, but tell me, who are you and what's your path to the ocean decade? So we'll start with Marcus and then go over to Julie, if that works. Yeah, certainly. And thanks for the, the kind introduction and where it's here. And yeah, I started working on renewable energy since high school, kind of randomly got introduced to a solar powered race car and then realized that there's an enormous need and and also learned about the IPCC and, and the state of the climate and really decided to dedicate my career towards helping with solutions to clean up what the previous generations of engineers have uh, created with the internal combustion engines and, and other ways to extract fossil fuels. And yeah, that led me then to study engineering with focus on renewable energy and energy systems in general. And through that, um, got in touch with Professor Alam at UC Berkeley for my final thesis. And then he invited me as a visiting scholar and kind of while waiting for my visa to come over, write my thesis with him. I read about his concept in the MIT Technology Review. And after reading about this new concept, just looking at the uh, at the bottom of the article, say, oh, this Professor Alam, the um, one's going to host me for the master thesis. And then this concept really was a perfect fit for my um, yeah, thesis, kind of um, par- partially energy, renewable energy, and, and also energy um, product development, systems engineering. And so then kind of really proposed that um, after halfway through the thesis, he assigned me a more fluids focused topic, but then with help of some colleagues and undergrads in the lab, we just built a a first working prototype back in 2012. And yeah, that then led to a first patent filed by Berkeley in 13. And that kind of could have been the end of the story, but I saw the promise of the technology and approach and also that there's an enormous need for uh, really a design similar to our modern wind turbine that can meet all the criteria. And then on a pretty risky setup, came back to Berkeley initially um, as a a scholar, again, unfunded visiting scholar. And yeah, with help of mentors and the Berkeley network and others got to know Elon Gore, who then later started Cycloton Road, now part of the larger um, activate.org program. And they really, um, yeah, brought us to another level and, and I got accepted to his first cohort um, off Cycleton Road back then, became a PI at the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab for two years. And with that seed funding was then able to recruit uh, um, a larger team. Thomas, our CTO, was already working with me. Nigel came on board as um, yeah, our first full-time funded ARE fellow um, back then, also funded by the program. And that's really um, how we got started and, and then the core team really contested in the U.S. Wave Energy Prize back in 1516, and that really forged the team together and got us on track to where we are today now, making a Wave Power a commercial um, yeah, option and, and reality. 
before I turn to Julie, that's just, uh, it's just so cool. Like, like you said, it could have just died there, you know, when you were at, at Berkeley the first time. And I just wonder how many fabulous ideas are just left, you know, on the lab table in, in some uh, way going forward. So it's just a testament to, to your persistence and willingness to take risks, which is not where everyone is super comfortable that, you know, you've gotten to this point. That's so cool. So Julie, what, uh, tell us a little bit about who you are and your path to the ocean decade. Sure. Well, hi, listeners. Uh, my name is Julie, and I'm currently serving as the head of communications for CalWave, as Taylor had mentioned, where I'm currently working to amplify wave energy as a solution for our world's gravest and greatest ocean, climate, and sustainable development challenges. And so I come from a public health and human rights background, having worked in the nonprofit sector for nearly a decade to advance systemic change through research, development, coalition building, and policy advocacy. And then being from California and really being driven by a deep connection to the ocean and understanding the opportunities and responsibilities that the private sector has for addressing the big problems such as climate change and sustainability is what ultimately led me here. And so I serendipitously um, met Marcus actually at the SOCAP uh, conference up in San Francisco, which is a social capital conference. And just, it was the first time I had ever heard about wave energy and, you know, being as passionate as I am about our oceans and, you know, really wanting to address the challenges, I immediately pretty much bugged him um, <laughs> while I was in my MBA program to see if there were any opportunities that I could contribute. Um, and so, you know, that was about two years ago. And now we're, we're here um, at a really exciting time and just excited to be sharing the story with you guys. Yeah, that's, uh, again, persistence in a, in a different sense. You know, you found a project that uh, and a group of, of people that you thought were doing good work and you kind of pushed uh, your way forward. And that's how we have to have to do things. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, 19 has been three years now, I think, Julie. So <laughs> yeah, time wow. flies and appreciate, yeah, um, really the initial help with all our marketing and, and outreach communications material because, yeah, we were a small team and none of us really had the, that training and background. Yeah, that kind of leads perfectly into my next question, which is a little broad because I don't, on on this podcast in the past, I've featured some companies and some private sector actors, but not a ton. Um, and I feel like the audience uh, for this podcast is is a lot in government or academia or NGO kind of sector. And so I would just love to, you know, hear from you. What what does a CEO and a head of communications do? You know, how, how does that work in the private sector just to give more uh, insight and information to those in different sectors? Yeah, happy to start. I mean, for a startup... There is people always say, hey, how does a, a usual day look like? And it changes in different phases of the. Oh, yeah, there's no usual yeah, day. Exactly. <laughs> and it's also I, I always nowadays when we bring in new people and so on and, and our team describes their focus area and role. And then I usually summarize. I do everything that distracts and prevents our technical team from making technical progress. So pretty much. That's what you put on your business card. Removing you barriers <laughs> to development. Yeah, exactly. And I'll pass it on to Julie. Yeah. And so I feel pretty lucky that we're in such a collaborative space. It makes communications and just the work behind it a lot easier. And so really in my day-to-day -day role, um, it involves really collaborating with our partners, 
working with our, you know, our team, our small team here to really develop the the messaging and the story um, behind wave energy and our technology, the importance of our technology specifically um, for addressing the big issues. Um, and so, you know, getting the word out to the masses requires, you know, educating media and then getting the word out through socials and any really all platforms that are available to us today. So um, the work changes day to day, but it's never boring. That's for sure. Yeah, I bet in a startup kind of environment too, that's so different than when you think about, you know, the halls of academia where this, <laughs> this idea was, was born. Um, so I want to go a little bit back to what I brought up in, in my intro, you know, in the US, especially recently, we've been hearing a lot about offshore wind and, and globally, you know, it's uh, been been a trending topic, I think, for a long time. Um, but I haven't heard a ton about wave energy. And so how does it fit into our offshore energy portfolio? Or how should it looking forward? Yeah, it is a good question. And in general, we save wave energies now where wind technology was, you know, in the early 2000s, really taking off commercially and, and growing. And the main reason why the industry is a little behind wind and solar is just that to deploy anything offshore is just significantly harder than onshore. And so I think offshore wind really has led the way and the, the wind industry, the turbines have grown gradually, becoming more reliable, more cost-effective onshore, and then also bigger to bring the economics down. And then once these were reached, they kind of really gradually grew offshore. And it's pretty interesting. I mean, we've carefully studied the history of wind, who designed and how did actually the, the dominant design of the wind turbine came to being. And for offshore wind, it was really very as gradual as it gets it started with onshore wind turbines in Denmark. And then really they just ran out of space, but it was super windy. And then they just went into kind of a mudland and then it gradually went offshore really one one meter of water depth at a time and, and slowly went further and further into deeper depth. And so pretty interesting. And the, the first offshore wind farms in the 90s were actually in below megawatt type of turbines, which was surprising me. So the the first really offshore wind farm and used the 800 kilowatt class of wind turbines back then. And overall, we're seeing a big potential for ocean energy. The U.S. Department of Energy has a very thorough resource assessment report, and they always differentiate between the theoretical potential, the feasible, and then the technical feasible potential. Because a lot of you know ocean energy being five different resources can be ocean thermal, um, tidal energy, so driven by the moon, um, can be ocean currents like the you know um, Gulf Stream and so on, so continuous um, currents. Then wave energy, which is essentially a stored form of wind energy that causes frictions on the ocean surfaces, and then that generates the waves. And then there's also saline gradient, so um, using salt differences between ocean and rivers to um, generate pressure, essentially, and that pressure can run turbines. So these are kind of the main categories of ocean energy. Offshore wind is sometimes being added. Um, yeah, but it's it's debatable if it's a, a natural uh, source of ocean energy. And so there's a lot of, yeah, these different resources have different potentials. 
but the potential also has to be a fit for the end user and for the customer. And so for wave power, we always say it's the largest unused renewable resource with the great benefit that it's really delivered to our front doors. So waves travel without any friction, any losses all over our oceans and then arrive on our coastlines. And in general, the rule of thumb is that yeah, once a wavelength reaches half, a, um, sorry, once a wave re- re- reaches the water depth on the coastline in about half of a wavelength, so let's take a 100 meter wave, once the water depth is 50 meters, then the wave starts interacting with the bottom and starts gradually losing energy due to friction. And then kind of the circular orbitals of the particles slowly become more of um, yeah, horizontal and, and more towards um, yeah, fully horizontal motion. And so for wave power, the Department of Energy has found that the technical feasible resource is still large enough to provide up to a third of U.S. electricity demand. So it's an enormous resource that is currently completely unused and is really available where the majority of our population lives. So in the U.S., about half of the population lives within 50 miles of the coastlines. And in general, globally, we're seeing a trend that migration is towards the coastlines um, yeah, for all the benefits of you know trade and 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 yeah, general urbanization. Yeah, it's uh, it's an example of how as we're moving toward twenty fifty and we want to decarbonize our world, you know, and get to to net zero or zero in places, we need all the tools in the toolbox, and so we need wave energy to fit into our overall offshore energy portfolio into our energy portfolio, you know, land and sea, <laughs> that it we need all the pieces of the puzzle to move forward. So based on your name, Marcus, you had talked about some of the areas where you can use wave power and the fact that a lot of people are coastal, but what are some of the places in the world that would benefit from wave power beyond California, <laughs> obviously? Is there geographic regions you're, that you guys have highlighted or targeted that are really good for this technology? Yeah, overall, the resource is really available anywhere. There is a larger body of water, so any larger ocean all along the Pacific, Atlantic coasts, you know, U.S. West Coast is really known for its wave potential. We always jokingly say, yeah, the the well-known surf spots are also good for wave power. It's the same resource, but there are also locations where people don't surf, but it's still a um, really good wave resource available. And some areas are more energetic, but towards the um, yeah, equator, it, it gets a little less energetic, but that doesn't mean it's you know, less viable. It just means the the total concentration is lower. But in in terms of energy density, we're still speaking one to five kilowatt per meter. So it's still 5x uh, compared to the energy density of wind and solar. And it just on the map uh, elsewhere, it's it's so energetic and so energy dense that yeah, it it sometimes looks less favorable. But overall, yeah, really um, any larger coastline People have been attempting, even in the Mediterranean Sea, to run smaller systems, but for utility scale, you know, multi-megawatt farms alongside offshore wind, for example, um, that that is yeah, mostly attractive on, on the yeah, larger oceans. So, Julie, is your whole job just to translate engineer speak to make us all not feel as stupid? Because I'm, I'm married to an engineer and my whole family <laughs> is full of engineers and I always feel like... 
<laughs> I have to be a bit of a communicator and figure out metaphors for what they're talking about. So is that just your job is trying to make sure that Marcus's smarts and the rest of the team's smarts get translated to the rest of us dummies in the world? <laughs> <laughs> you guys aren't dummies, but I definitely, I, I think you're pretty spot on. I, I first have to understand what they're saying as well, um, working with them um, to you know, make this better digestible for the public. Yeah. So I want to try something with this next question. So I'm going to ask Julie to talk about the CalWave tech technology. So what makes it unique? And then I want to hear Marcus's answer. So I just want to compare how the engineer versus communicator, because that's how, you know, your guys' audience is really broad. So you need to be able to have that deep technical expertise, but also speak to, you know, the general public about what this means. So Julie, then Marcus. (laughs) Absolutely. But before we jump to that, can I just add one more point to the last question? Yes, please. I just didn't want to leave this behind because remote coastal and island communities, especially small island developing states, are also going to be huge benefactors of wave energy access. And I think that's just really important for us to think about um, because right now these communities are relying heavily on imported fossil fuels that are dirty and coming at a substantial cost, not only economically, but also to the environment. Um, I had the chance to go to French Polynesia um, this spring, um, working with the community hand in hand to really discuss ocean-based solutions. And one of the bits of information I gained out of that was, you know, their economy is extremely tourism dependent and there's, you know, they're making about 70 billion a year on tourism. And then that money gets directly um, spent and subsidized on oil and gas. So, you know, by unlocking these solutions, we can really create some opportunities for them. Yeah. Thanks for bringing up that kind of, you know, the the equity part of it, too. And how do we make sure that as we move forward in a decarbonized world that we're not leaving anybody behind that, you know, the that first world nations won't have, you know, fully green grids and everything, but then you know, you have island nations or really remote areas that are still, you know, using diesel, uh, diesel engines. So yeah, that's a great uh, piece of the puzzle to bring up. So thank you. Awesome. Yeah, of course. Happy to share. Yeah. So the technology that let's get into a little bit more about the nitty gritty. What, how does it work? What, what makes it unique? What, it, what does it do? How does it capture energy? Sure. So I can um, give this a go first and then pass it on to Marcus, who I'm sure will give some interesting details as well. But our primary technology right now is called the X-Wave, and it's transforming the motion of ocean waves to really equip communities of scale with electricity and localized power. And so our architecture is really achieving the highest efficiency by operating fully submerged and fully autonomously, which is something that makes us quite unique. Um, By being fully submerged, we're able to protect from aggressive swells and storms um, while also allowing energy capture for multiple degrees of freedom. Um, And this is addressing some of those survivability challenges that developers have faced in the past. And then also by operating fully autonomously, um, we've adopted a novel geometry control mechanism that is similar to what you would see in um, modern day wind turbines to really allow for just absorbing and harnessing waves in all different sea states. Um, And then other features that we have um, is really 
the scalability of our technology. We can provide, um, you know, power for farms from 100 kilowatts to, you know, over 500 megawatts of power. Um, we have a very high capacity factor achieving about 40% minimum alone. And then this number greatly increases when you are also co-locating with offshore wind, um, which is, you know, touches on your point in the last of how we really um, complement the offshore portfolio. Um, and then, you know, other points, I think maybe Marcus might want to jump in to talk about, you know, exactly the design of our technologies and other other interesting elements. Yeah, Marcus, what do you have to add from the engineer perspective? How'd she do? Actually, yeah, not much to add. Maybe from a systems engineering perspective, this is a renewable energy technology. So really similar to wind turbine, has main two, two main functions, produce as, as much power, as reliable as possible, and to do that as cheap as possible. So yeah, one really critical feature, and, and that was the missing piece in, in the space, is the ability to shut down, and that allows us to be cost-effective. So historically, technologies often based on the surface, they have no means to shelter from extreme storms. So they have to design for the very big storm, the 50-year return wave to become certifiable from a you know, safety insurance perspective. And then structures, anchors become very expensive because you have to over-design for these very rare events that don't really contribute to a lot of energy production. And so with our ability to mitigate loads, to shelter in storms, we bring the operating loads as close as possible to these storm survival loads. And that really makes a cost-effective system. And that's exactly what the modern wind turbine has achieved with uh, pitch and yaw control. But I think, yeah, overall, um, these these were really good um, summaries that Julie provided. It's always good to <laughs> test the employee in front, of, in front of her boss. That's how I make friends in this world. You've had some big successes this year uh, with the completion of your ocean-going wave energy pilot system. So how did that pilot project come about? Was it a requirement for, you know, going to market and, and was it a success? Yeah, that was really a super exciting project for us. It was really a direct follow-on to the U.S. Wave Energy Prize. That was a nationwide technical competition hosted by the Department of Energy to find and identify next generation wave devices that can really break through this challenge I described between high performance and ability to shut down really combined in one and the same technology. And so our team did really well there out of 90 teams got down selected over four gates, uh, third party reviewed on cost and performance basis. And then with the great results we achieved in the competition, we won a follow-on award from the Department of Energy in 2017 to demonstrate the system, not in a utility scale size yet, but in a scale version in open ocean. And so we started working on this open ocean demonstration since 17, and then yeah, experienced quite some setback with COVID. It was right the moment where um, yeah, we essentially pushed a button, all go for manufacturing, welding the system, really happy with all the design iterations and learnings we've incorporated all the dry testing of our drivetrain and generator and so on in advance. And then, yeah, all manufacturing froze. Uh, Berkeley um, wasn't able to allow us on campus. 
back then we were collaborating with civil engineering to test our drivetrain. And so that pushed us then back to deploy in 21. But yeah, it was really exciting that we were able to pick up and also yeah, got um, the time to really execute the project. And we partnered with the Scripps Institution of Oceanography at UC San Diego. Initially, we were just looking for coastal shallow water wave data. And back then, a a contact, Julie Toma, invited us to just come and deploy there because they're the landowner. And that's kind of that relationship started quite a long time ago, even before Cycleton Road. And we, we kept in touch. And it wasn't really the the most straightforward site to deploy because no other wave device had deployed there before. And there are other sites that are dedicated specifically for demonstrating wave technology. But yeah, that really collab- the collaboration with SIO was extremely productive and fruitful. And then, yeah, we were able to get all the permits and um, yeah, were able to execute the project. So we installed the unit in September of last year with the goal to operate for six months. That was part of our DOE contract. And then after six months, it really went so well, surprisingly, um, yeah, without any issues. Um, we had zero intervention, zero downtime. And then we just decided to keep running until, yeah, after 10 months for contractual reasons, we had to yeah, um, wrap up the project. And, and then we just recovered the unit about a month ago in July. And yeah, it's been super exciting to have this system um, yeah, in the field operating fully autonomous for the majority of the deployment time, really going autonomously from operations into shutdown, back into operations, and also yeah, meeting the expectations we had in terms of um, performance and, and our forecast from our advanced simulations. Great. So it gave you what you wanted to hear. Is that what I'm what I'm hearing? Exactly. Yeah, there were six main categories we really wanted to prove with the pilot, you know, general processes that we can install it. That's a big portion of operating offshore. Is it safe and reliable to install by a third party? Then the general operating and performance, but then also the survivability and the autonomy and yeah, the maintenance of the system. So we, we were able to yeah, check all these boxes we, we had set up in the beginning of the project. Another thing to add um, with you know the prime motivator of our work really being to protect the environment, um, another accomplishment of this pilot was really our ability to collect environmental monitoring data to assess our technology's impacts on marine life and ecosystems. So we collaborated with Pacific Northwest National Lab to observe implications using 360 video and three different sound monitoring tools. And what was found was that our impacts are acceptable to marine life and really they're quite insignificant um, with no adverse effects in regards to entanglement, sound, collision and pinch points, electromagnetic fields and discharge and spills. And so for anyone interested, um, this public report by PNNL can be found linked on our website and also the upcoming press release. Yeah, that's so great, you know, because that's one of the things that I think in in my thoughts and when I think about decarbonizing and the need, you know, to scale up all this renewable energy, that the part that we need to keep considering, too, is how do we make sure we don't screw anything else up in the environment when we drop, you know, these, not drop, carefully place these expensive pieces of technology that will save us <laughs> into the ocean, you know, and how do we make sure that 
we're not going to cause adverse effects um, to to the environment. So that's a great. It's good that you guys are considering that early on and making sure that you know you're you're creating a solution in many different ways. <laughs> And environmental acceptability has really been a criteria of value evaluation since the U.S. Wave Energy Prize and been really important for us, as, as Julie pointed out. So the Pacific Northwest National Lab has an initiative called Triton, and they deployed yeah, several sets of instruments, uh, video monitoring, and, and three different types of acoustic monitoring, because that's really the one category that people are concerned is the sound. And yeah, as pointed out, it's all been really acceptable. And all other concerns that we often hear don't apply to wave because we don't have any fast moving parts, everything fast spinning is inside the buoy sheltered and and yeah no um surprises there for mammal where for wind turbines often um yeah birds don't see the blades because they're moving too fast and in our case everything is moving with the water with the ocean and or slower um so there are no yeah, fast changes in, in motion of any of the parts so that that makes it really environmentally um, friendly and acceptable so just for kind of to picture it for myself, and I'm not sure if you know this like statistic, but the the system that you had deployed, the pilot you tested, what could it power? You know, could it power like a treadmill for 40 minutes or like, you, you know, what kind of, I'm trying to paint a picture of the scale of what the technology looks like that you deployed and tested. Yeah, the goal was really to demonstrate our utility scale X-Wave architecture that is more in the megawatt class. And the megawatt system can power about 10,000 homes in, on an average. So this unit specifically yeah, is able to power about um, 30 homes. But as said, that, that wasn't designed to be you know, a final solution. And, and it was more a platform for us to learn, collect. We're planning to offer it for remote off-grid applications. Potentially Scripps has some um, yeah, applications where they want to run data um, sensors, chemical sensors that are pretty power hungry in a remote um, setting. And so yeah, technology like this could be used for applications in the blue economy for ocean sensing, ocean data as a platform. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So much more than 20 minutes of, of a treadmill. So that's fantastic. And thinking about both the you know renewable energy possibilities, but then also data, which is a huge piece of of the ocean decade, bringing it back to the show and what uh, I try to connect it to here is, you know, the fact that we have a lot of data currently, uh, but we don't know what to do with it or how to analyze it. But we're also missing key pieces of data in lots of places, especially, um, you know, continuous data and being able to, to track that to be able to make decisions and help influence the blue economy. So that's a, I didn't even think about that. That's a cool kind of dual feature of, of this technology and the work you guys are doing. So this pilot was one step down the road, and correct me if I'm wrong, and making this technology commercially available. Um, and the process and the idea of, you know, commercial release is a bit foreign to me. Again, I'm not from this, this industry space. And uh, maybe again, a lot of my listeners aren't either. So can you explain what the next steps are? So like, wh what do you do after this? How, how does it get to market after this point? 
Yes, so with the great results from this initial pilot, we've already had secured additional awards from the Department of Energy in 2019 to upscale the drivetrain and the design. And then just in January, we won in a fourth larger DOE contract to build and operate our next step up, the X100 100-kilowatt system. And here the goal is to deploy at PuckWave. PuckWave is a new um, nonprofit funded by the Department of Energy. It's the first fully pre-permitted, grid-connected, accredited wave energy test site in the U.S. located in Oregon, rated about 20 megawatts. So they have four cables of five megawatt each going out and allowing developers like us to de-risk the technology. So really collect all the data needed to then become bankable and um, financeable. So if we go back to the beginning of wind, that's exactly the same um, that yeah, wind turbines went through that they started with first projects and then built up the confidence, the reliability, um, all the technical certification, and that then um, brought down the cost of capital. And with that, project financing um, then was able to scale um, significantly. And now yeah, with the new um, yeah, IRAs and, and, and government supports, one area that's super exciting for us is the PCT, the produ production tax credit, um, got extended and broadened and now yeah, also allows wave energy even in a smaller scale initial for even a single unit could be supported by the production tax credit and that really helps to jumpstart new industries and that really helped solar and wind uh, initially get started so going back to the origin of solar power in the early 2000s actually the californian and, and german government was extremely yeah, supportive and provided incentives for the technologies and that brought the you know it's like who really it's always the interesting question, um, yeah, who buys the first hundred, the first thousands of these to then bring the cost down where we are today, where wind and solar are the cheapest sources of power, um, not only renewable, but just power, period. And so the reason is really because the, the resource is for free and the due to large production volumes and you know everything being so mature, the cost came down so much. And that's what uh, people often don't see is that if you just want to buy the same amount of steel that your car weighs, you probably pay as much as yeah, just to, to buy, let's say, a ton of raw steel on, on the market. It's as expensive as the entire car. So what Ford and you know the advanced manufacturing of today has really accomplished to bring these complex products down to a very low cost where it really bottoms out at the cost of the raw material that's exactly what we're seeing in energy technologies and that's why these um, big um, government supported programs are so critical because they allow exactly to jumpstart um, new industries and to bring the cost down to then become competitive to old and mature and established technologies that have already achieved that economies of scale yeah that's so crucial and it kind of it helps transition me into the next section as well too thinking about you know this broader ocean decade and really all it is you know is a way for us to think about the complex ocean problems that we have and how do we get to where we want to be what is the ocean we want in 2030 and i think the one of the oceans that i want you know because i don't think there's just one ocean we want i think that there's multiple components of creating you know an ideal ocean and and it differs for each person, but having an ocean that can 
provide a lot of my power, you know, is it without, you know, hurting biodiversity and uh, with helping with conservation issues too. Like that's, that's a big part of my ocean decade goal. Um, so I'd love to hear both of your perspectives, maybe starting with Julia and then going to Marcus. How do you want to see the ocean and energy spaces change over the next eight years? You know, where do you want to see not only wave power, but just, you know, ocean energy in general uh, by 2030? Yeah, well, I first, I hope it becomes the larger part of the public discourse that ocean and energy issues and solutions are linked, you know, because then the opportunities for synergy become truly endless. And if we can work together to decarbonize not only the energy sector, but also the blue economy sector by tapping into wave power, we'll be able to better safeguard our oceans from the detrimental impacts of climate change and also provide opportunities for sustainable growth. Um, and then another thing to look forward to is um, the ocean internet of things. So it's one concept that will inherently advance collaboration between ocean and energy spaces. And what it is, is essentially a growing network of smart ocean devices that will interconnect the blue economy and acceler accelerate convergence across ocean sectors. And so take, for example, offshore aquaculture farms that require power for their operations. Wave energy can provide clean, cost-efficient power to improve their sustainability practices, monitor CO2 levels, and then communicate the data in real time across ocean networks and value chains. And that's just one example. Just one. Yeah. Uh, Marcus, anything uh, from your perspective, you talked a lot about, you know, how we get these costs down and how do we, you know, what, what does the ocean energy space look like for you in 2030? Yeah, so for us really, as Julie pointed out, we want to bring technology to the market that becomes competitive. And by that allows us to become really the third lag on the stool next to solar and wind in our renewable energy mix. And here there is an enormous opportunity to partner with offshore wind. We have about, yeah, I think, 60 gigawatts in the pipeline in the US and then 500 gigawatt of um, offshore wind by 2030. And Wind and wave power happens at different times of the year and also during the day. So there's a great opportunity to partner and use the same export infrastructure. So in general, wind has a capacity factor of 40 to 60% in the very best cases. That means the rated power, let's take a one megawatt wind turbine, only produces half of that um, power on average. That means all the electrical infrastructure is designed for one megawatt but most of the times it only um, exports half of that. And so the rest of that excess capacity could be filled with wave power due to the time difference when the resource is available. So there's an enormous partnership to an opportunity to co-locate wind and wave farms. So not mix and intertwine them, but have them as clean separated farms, but using the same export infrastructure, the same um, yeah, substation and grid interconnection. And also from a supply chain perspective and, and job perspective, the, the same expertise that is required to build and maintain a, a offshore wind farm really applies to um, a wave farm as well. And we've intentionally designed our technology to overlap as close as possible to the offshore wind supply chain with spare parts and ability to install it, offshore operations and the like. And so 
for us, we're really hoping to fill every access capacity we can find that is already there with offshore wind. But there are also opportunities to deploy where offshore wind cannot go. So our system operates fully submerged. We're not causing any visual impact. Often offshore wind has faced nimbyism, not in my backyard, due to the visual impact. And so the fact that yeah, we don't have that issue, we can really fill the gaps, as Julie pointed out, for communities where tourism and that visual impact is critical part of the offering. Yeah, we can fill that critical gap. Also, the availability for smaller grids like islands or microgrids is even more critical. In our case, we can really replace these systems very quickly and easily because they're like ships. We can just bring out a new one and, and replace uh, one that needs maintenance. And by that, we have significantly higher availability than, let's say, an offshore wind turbine where um, replacing um, parts is, is very difficult. Sometimes take it takes helicopters or you can't just disconnect a huge um, tower from its foundation. And so there is um, yeah, another great um, benefit there. And CalWave is also a member of the Marine Energy Council, which is part of the US National Hydro Association. And here the yeah, targets of the industry are really to reach 50 megawatt by 2025 and then 500 megawatt by 2030 in the US um, with marine energy. Yeah, we hit this, you know, S curve in so many technologies. It's something I was just looking at in my in my day job trying to decarbonize shipping that we're we're talking about zero emission shipping fuels and how do we, you know, get to that level of the S curve to get it to transition and so there there will be a point, you know, and it's happened with all the other renewable energies too. We've seen with offshore wind and with solar um that, you know, they've reached these tipping points then they're just unstoppable. And so I think hopefully by 2030 if we're not fully there yet for, you know, wave technology. And, and I'm not sure we might be, but we're at least like most of the way there. <laughs> Going back a little bit to uh, the fact that CalWave is a startup, you know, I think that's so novel from my perspective. You guys probably, you deal with startups all the time. You are a startup, but the role of entrepreneurship over the next, you know, eight years um, as we get to 2030 that I think we've had a lot of conversations on this show and, and in other spaces about, you know, how we need more research, how we need more all sorts of stuff, how we need more data, how we need more collaboration, how we need more of all of those great big juicy words in order to achieve the ocean that we want. But I'd love to get your perspective, maybe starting, starting with Julie on the role of entrepreneurship during these next eight years, you know, like how, how do we bring that energy, no pun intended, <laughs> to, you know, a giant United Nations bureaucratic, you know, initiative to transform the ocean that it's not the UN. When you think the UN, you do not think innovative and entrepreneurship, not all the time. Uh, so how could we bring some of that energy to this space? Yeah, that's a really good question. Thank you for asking that. Um, one point maybe to mention is that the IEA or the International Energy Association has estimated that almost half of global emission reductions um, by 2050 will come from technologies that exist only as prototypes or demonstration projects today. And knowing that energy, climate, and ocean are inextricably linked, it's really important to think about how we can best support entrepreneurship in these spaces right now. 
And for us, we've been fortunate to be a part of several different accelerators and programs um, in the past, such as the Script Start Blue program, Google's SVD program, Launch Alaska, Greentown Labs, and Activate. And they've really supported us with mentorship, building our networks, and refining our operational processes. And so for a UN initiative looking to transform the ocean, I'd, I'd really point to some of these great examples um, and what they're doing, particularly, particularly scripts um, and their Start Blue program, um, as they're integrating science, industry, investment, and government networks to support entrepreneurs and startups. So, you know, there's, there's so many examples to look to and to improve on. Um, and, you know, I think by also being able to share the data and share the resources, it'll only help the ocean decade um, and its mission as a whole. Marcus, as an entrepreneur yourself, uh, anything else to add on this topic? Certainly, yeah. We're, you know, a mission-driven organization. And for us, SDG 7, Affordable Clean Energy, was always um, on the top of our list as kind of the most critical to um, avoid uh, yeah, um, terrible effects of climate change. But there are also uh, many other SDGs along the way, economic development, energy independence, um, clean water could be one of them. And yeah, the United Nations actually has a dedicated group to um, facilitate ocean energy. Um, it's called SysDocs. And we just um, started a conversation with the team there. And they're really building up a network of small island development states and yeah, allowing them to become energy independent, which is exactly the um, SDG um, next to Climate Action 13, but it's also then 11 sustainable um, cities and um, yeah, economic development and energy independence. And so, um, yeah, that all these UN SDGs are folded into that um, SysDocs Ocean Energy Program. So we're in early conversations with the yeah, um, committee there working on that subgroup. And we're trying to contribute as much as we can because that's exactly mission aligned that we have the technology and, and they have the outreach and um, the partnerships and trying to navigate yeah, where we can really make the biggest impact even with the first and the first 10 and the first 100 units and we really want to move the needle and naturally we're going where the electricity price is the highest and, and that's also where the pain point is the highest for the end users and so there's kind of a natural uh, matchmaking that takes place there but there are also yeah as I said other drivers um, like visual impact or um, you know other development uh, industries so what we've seen in general if you go back to Kind of the history of technology adoption and, and, and development they've been especially now that climate change is really in the forefront of a lot of news people started to look into the complexity and importance of our energy and electricity systems and what we're seeing often is that all infrastructure all industry really falls and breaks with um yeah ability to run you know run your factories and, and provide power and so that's really the the very it's like any other infrastructure you need a port you need the streets you need the power to really um, have a thriving um, industry and economy and so uh, providing energy access is really the the starting point and, and a lot of positive things can follow um, for these communities yeah i need to connect that because the un is so big i'm not even sure the ocean decade team knows about that <laughs> that group that's doing the 
ocean energy stuff. So I'll need to help facilitate that connection. And that's the beautiful part of this podcast. I love learning new things. And I love especially episodes like this where both your Cal Wave's main work is not on the ocean decade. I focus on a lot of people who have submitted projects and uh, and programs to the ocean decade or who are tangentially uh, involved in it um, or very directly involved in it. But I love, you know, these kind of almost outside episodes where I, we can then draw these connections and bring new ideas into the ocean decade because we don't want it to be an ocean echo chamber. <laughs> you know, we don't want just the same people bringing in the same ideas. So it's uh, been really fantastic getting to, you know, hear and learn more about this technology. And I'm going to go after this episode and try to explain it to my engineer husband. And he's going to ask me a bunch of questions that I don't know. And I'll give him your email, Marcus, so that he can ask more specific questions as a systems engineer himself. Um, But where can the audience go to learn more about CalWave and your your work? And so our website and social media platforms would probably be best or absolutely be best. Our website is calwave.energy. And we're pretty active on LinkedIn and Twitter. So give us a follow, interact with us, um, ask us questions. We're happy to, you know, inform, collaborate, and keep the ball moving forward. And we're always looking for the best and the brightest as we grow the team. So yeah, please take a look at our open positions there at calwave.energy. Feel free to shoot me an email, Marcus, at calwave.energy anytime. And also, yeah, always looking for industrial partners. Um, We have an active conversation with the investor community and anyone that wants to come on board and really propel our mission forward. Um, We're really um, glad to start the conversation. Fantastic. Thank you both for for your time today and your candor and your humor and uh, trying to make me not feel like a dummy with all this technology stuff. I already feel a little bit like that in my day job with shipping decarbonization that I once I was at. This is a kind of tangent to end it on, but I probably happens to you too. I was at a wedding last year and someone asked me how you decarbonize shipping. And I asked like, policy-wise, politically, or technically? And he said, technically. And I said, oh, crap, because I cannot give you all the intricacies of all of that. But you did a great job of diving into the intricacies and then bringing it back up to a high level to help all the rest of us non-technical people understand and bring this important conversation to the ocean decade. So thank you both so much. Yeah, and maybe to add on that point, I mean, we're seeing now even subsidies for hydrogen at the $3 per kilowatt hour. And, the, you know, we have the opportunity to produce hydrogen on board and actually help with local um, shipping. But then also for long transit shipping, we can really be a fuel station that has on board uh, hydrogen production. So there might be a puzzle piece where we can also contribute to decarbonizing in that sector. Oh, I love when my day job and my podcast job come together. It's all—it's so good to think about all these different solutions. Um, thank you, Marcus. Thank you, Julie. Uh, and thank you all for listening. And we'll catch you all ne- next month. Bye.